In this session, we'll be discussing Romans chapter 7. And I should note at the outset that this is no easy task. In fact, according to the New Testament scholar Dale Bruner, from the time that Romans was written until now, this chapter has been the single most difficult one in the book of Romans for the church to interpret. And that's saying something, because as you'll well know by now, this is no easy book. But this chapter, Romans 7, this one is particularly difficult. Not because the sentences that Paul uses are difficult to understand in and of themselves, but because what he says in this chapter seems to stand in contradictions with things he says elsewhere. Take, for instance, what Paul has to say about the law. In verse 6, he says that we have been released from the law and that it used to hold us captive. And then later in verse 10, he, he seems to suggest that the law is a cause of human death, which almost makes it sound as if the law itself is evil. But that makes no sense. I mean, this is the Mosaic law we're talking about. These are, these are the words that God gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. This is the same law that's described elsewhere in the Bible, like in Psalm 119, as being sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold and silver. And this is the same law that Paul himself, just a few verses later in Romans 7, verse 12, that he says is holy and just and good. So how are we supposed to make sense of these very negative comments that he makes about the law in this chapter? And that's just one of the difficulties we encounter here. Even more perplexing is what he says later when he talks about being captive to the law of sin and being unable to do the good that he wants and instead doing the thing that he hates. In the very last chapter, which we talked about last session, chapter 6, he was saying that those who have been joined to Christ are no longer under the dominion of sin. But now, just a chapter later, he seems to be changing his mind and saying that, that he himself is still controlled by sin. So, again, we're left with a puzzle. What in the world is Paul talking about? And why does he seem to be contradicting himself? Now, we're going to try to tackle some of those questions in this session. And to do that, I'm actually going to take a cue from Dale Bruner, that New Testament scholar I mentioned a minute ago, and divide this chapter up into three sections. Three sections that I've entitled, Freedom from the Law, the Good of the Law, and Life in the Flesh. So first, freedom from the law. In the first six verses of this chapter, Paul seems to be at pains to emphasize that Christians have been liberated in some way from the Mosaic law. Uh, to do that, he uses the analogy of a woman whose husband dies. When the husband was alive, Paul says, the woman was legally bound to him as his wife. But once he's dead, she's no longer legally bound. The marriage is dissolved and she's free to marry someone else. Likewise, he says, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead. Now that may sound like a rather strange analogy because taken literally, it sounds like Paul's saying that prior to the death of Jesus, we were somehow wedded to the law, but 
but now that union has died and we can be bound to Christ instead. But maybe that's being too literal with the analogy. Because in verse 6, Paul switches metaphors and he refers to the law no longer as a husband who has died, but rather as a slave master who has been keeping people in bondage. But now, he says, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Freed from the law, like a woman from her deceased husband or a slave who has escaped captivity. What does this mean? Unfortunately, Paul doesn't explain precisely what he means in this section of the chapter, but from what he says elsewhere, it appears that he has at least two things in mind. First, to be freed from the law means to be freed from the judgment and punishments that it contains. Remember that the law of Moses included not only instructions to the people of Israel about how to live, but also consequences about what would happen to those who violated it. If you read the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see where Moses talks about the judgment of God that would come as a result of disregarding the law. But Christians are freed from that judgment because, as Paul has already said, Jesus bore it himself in his death. And since we died with him, we are no longer condemned. That's, that's one way in which Christians are freed from the law. The second way is a little different. It's clear that for Paul, the basic moral teachings of the law are still in effect for Christians. In fact, later in this book of Romans, he'll, he'll give a lot of instruction for how Christians should live. And he'll say that these ways of living fulfill the moral vision of the law. But the way in which Christians hear these instructions, these commands, have changed. Before Christ, the law was just a series of commands. Don't do this. Do this instead. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. But that's not true anymore. Now Christians hear the instructions of the law not as commands of something they must do, but as promises of what they may do, what they are now free to do, not out of compulsion, but simply out of love. As the Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen puts it, the gospel does not say, do this because otherwise you won't get into heaven, or do this because, although of course God will accept you anyway, that's what good Christians do. The moral discourse of the gospel says only you may do this because Jesus lives. The moral teaching of the law doesn't change. It's still the good and holy expression of God's will. But for Christians, it is no longer law. It's no longer a command, for as Paul says, the legal requirements of the law, they've been done away with. And because of that, Christians may, they are free to live out the vision and spirit of the law. Okay, well, well, that's the main focus of the first six verses. What about the next section of this chapter, verses 7 to 13, that section which I've entitled The Good of the Law? Now, some Jewish readers would no doubt have been very surprised at the negative way Paul is portraying the law in the beginning part of this chapter. Like I said, the analogies of a deceased husband and a slave master, it's not exactly flattering. And Paul recognizes that. 
In fact, he seems to assume that people may come to the conclusion that he's saying that the law itself is in some way evil. That's why in verse 7, he asked the unsettling question that he thinks may be on the minds of some of his readers. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. In what follows, Paul goes on to explain that the problem isn't with the law. It isn't God's commands that bring about sin and misery in our lives. Quite the other way around. It's sin, that that menacing and powerful master, that tyrant, that is the source of our misery. What the law does is simply show sin for what it really is. It exposes it. As Paul puts it in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin may be shown to be sin. In other words, the law that was given to Moses is in and of itself good because prior to the giving of that law, people people may do things that are wrong. They certainly committed adultery and dishonored their parents, swindled their coworkers and coveted their neighbor's possessions. And they might've felt bad about it and others might've disapproved, but it's all kind of subjective, isn't it? In a world without law, every man and woman simply does what is right in their own eyes. And who's really to say what's right and what's wrong? But when God gives this law to the people of Israel at Sinai, that all changed. They still did as they pleased, of course. In and of itself, these commands didn't make them righteous people. But now they, and now we, are shown for what we really are, not just people who occasionally make mistakes, not just people who sometimes act a little too selfishly. No, what the law says is that we are willful sinners and transgressors of God's commands. That's the truth. And because it's the truth, it's a good thing to know. So the law is good, Paul concludes, because the law exposes us. It tells the truth about us and leaves us with no excuse. Now, that's the main thesis of the second part of chapter 7, and it, it leads Paul very naturally into the third and final theme that he wants to talk about, which is the, the personal and psychological experience of an individual who feels exposed by the law and wants to do what's right, but feels completely unable to do anything about it. Or more succinctly, the theme of this section is as I'm calling it, life in the flesh. Uh, when Del Bruner said that this chapter is one of the most difficult and debated chapters in all of Romans, it was mostly this section that he had in mind. And what makes this section so difficult to interpret is Paul's use of a single word, the word I. Notice what he says, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but I, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
This is one of the most honest and profound descriptions of inner psychological struggle in the entire Bible. And it has been a subject of endless fascination and commentary from the earliest times of the church. Because when you read what Paul says here, you're left with a question. Who is this I that is speaking? When Paul says, I am of the flesh and I do not do what I want, who is he talking about? Is this a confession of his own personal ongoing struggle with sin? Or is he speaking more generically? And if it's more generic, what kind of person does he have in mind? Is it someone who is a Christian? Someone who's already been buried and raised with Christ? Or is this supposed to be the experience of a person who hasn't yet come to faith? Already in the early church, this was a major question. Some early church leaders, like the Latin theologian Ambrosiaster, thought Paul was describing the experience of a person who hasn't yet experienced grace. Others, like the great biblical scholar, Origen of Alexandria, said that Paul is talking about someone who is in the early stages of conversion. They've, they've begun to follow Jesus, but they haven't yet advanced very far along the way. And still others, like the great St. Augustine, argued that Paul isn't talking about a non-Christian here. Paul is actually giving an honest and vivid picture of the ongoing struggle with sin that every Christian endures. In other words, Paul is just telling us what it feels like as a Christian to want to do right, but to find yourself constantly doing wrong instead. And Augustine wasn't alone in this interpretation. Some of the greatest theological minds of the Christian church throughout history, men such as Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin, they all agree that when Paul says, I, he's talking here about a Christian who's already been reborn and yet continues to fall prey to the powerful influence of sin. Now, I should say that as a general rule, when Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin are all in agreement on a point of theology, I tend to assume that they must be right. But as hesitant as I am to disagree with them, I think that their reading on this one point has some serious problems. It would be one thing if Paul simply said that he keeps on sinning even though he wants to obey God, and then he struggles to resist temptation. But that's not what he says. In verse 18, he actually says that he wants to do what's right, but that he doesn't have the ability to do it. Literally, he can't do what's good. And then later in verse 23, he says that he is captive to the law of sin. That's very strong language. As the German scholar Werner Kummel notes, there can be no doubt that the person described here is the slave of sin, who knows no rescue as a human being, and who not only does not do what he wills to do, but cannot do what he wills to do. And that's a problem. Not just because it seems like an overly pessimistic attitude to have, but because it directly contradicts what Paul says. Both in Romans chapter 6, where he emphasized that 
those who have died with Christ have been freed from the controlling power of sin. And Romans chapter 8, where, as we'll see in the next session, he describes the Christian life as one of living not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's why most biblical scholars most biblical scholars disagree with Augustine and Luther and Calvin, even if they strongly admire them, and think that the person Paul's describing here is a person who is still under the tyrannical control of sin. In other words, the condition of every person apart from Jesus Christ. Of course, that doesn't mean that Augustine and Luther and Calvin were entirely wrong. They may not have been correct on how they read the I in these verses, but there is a reason that they were drawn to this passage and said that this is a depiction of the Christian life. After all, as the New Testament makes clear elsewhere, the Christian life is never entirely free of sin. The desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life continue to seduce and bedevil Christians. And any Christian who is honest with themselves knows that they continue to need the mercy and grace of God. There is a reason, as St. Augustine pointed out, that Christians continue to pray for, their, for the forgiveness of their sins on a daily basis. But for those who have been buried with Christ, something fundamental, according to Paul, has changed. They are no longer under the dominion of sin, as he said in chapter 6. Nor do they any longer hear the law as commands and threats. For what we're discovering here is they, we, have been set free. We have been raised with Christ, and now we may, not we must, but we may go out and do the good that we desire to do in our inward being. For, as we'll discuss in the next session, the Christian lives no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. <laughs>